we've been in a new series called All Things New. We started the first week talking about the way God wants us to believe. Not just believe for salvation, but believe what he says every day. So that our life will be not just saved, but we'll have life in all of its fullness. Right? Last week we talked about belonging. That he wants us to belong to him. And this morning we want to talk about becoming, but uh, Nasser is going to do that. Nasser Alakmet. Not bad? For a Gentile, not bad, he says. Would you please welcome Nasser, our friend, to come. I've talked about Nasser. He can talk more about himself. Um, but let's pray for him. And uh, Lord, uh, let's, we, we ask you, Father, that you will speak to us through Nasser, that you'll bless him, that you'll use him in a very powerful way to speak to all of us and change our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thank brother. you. So, if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and get to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to spend a little bit of time this morning. So, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 Um, says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might might receive as the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So this passage was always very significant for me when I came to Jesus about 20 years ago because I was one who was most certainly born into bondage and into slavery and was one who was born under a law, not necessarily the law of Moses, but a law form. So I was actually born in the United States, but my father was from Saudi Arabia, and that's after he he was here as an international student, and uh, after myself and my three siblings were born, um, and he was done with school, he moved us back home to Saudi Arabia, which is where I grew up, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And there... If you ask you know, anyone, it's 100% Muslim. <laughs> they say 70% Sunni, 30% Shia, um, but 100% Muslim. I'll tell you that. It's not really true, but that's what they say. But you certainly feel that way growing up in Saudi Arabia, that everyone is a Muslim, everybody is going to the mosque. And I don't know how much you guys know about Islam. Uh, some people have uh, talked about Islam as a, as a religion. Um, there are some that say, well, no, it's more like a political ideology. Really, it's, it encompasses all of those things and more. Islam, the best way I can describe it, is a blueprint for how one should live their life in order to please God. And so it encompasses you know, every detail of your life, how you uh, worship, how you conduct yourself in in business, in war, um, how schools should be run, how government should be run, how families should be run. Every aspect of your life is codified 
in some form in Islam. And that's what I grew up in and grew up around lots of people um, all in agreement um, with that blueprint of life. And I was very convinced that it was the right way. And so what happened to me was my family and I were here in, on vacation um, in the United States in 1990. And Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait and war breaks out and we get stuck here. And to me, that was really tra- traumatic because I saw the United States, um, we call it in Arabic, a shaitan al-kabir, which means the, the great Satan. And the reason we see it that way is because of all of the idolatry and violence and, you know, inappropriateness in the media and, and all of this and just, you know, not honoring parents, not honoring God, just, you know, a, literally a country of um, people that aren't, you know, they might claim to be Christian and maybe this is the fruit of Christianity, but to our eyes, they were people that were just following after Satan. And so I really, you know, it was fun to come here for vacation, but I didn't want to live here. Um, and so I got stuck here. And I didn't know what to do at first. And then I kind of got in my head, well, I can be a Muslim missionary. Maybe I can make a difference. Maybe I can help these poor people out who are all just going to hell. And so I spent five years in the Midwest doing this Muslim missionary thing. And you have to understand, like, you know, there are different levels of, of, you know, Muslim person. Like, there's people we call, like, kind of nominal, and, you know, maybe they show up in the mosque, you know, once in a while, and they do their prayers. But, you know, they just kind of, you know, live their lives. And you have, like, the extreme end folks, you know, the people that are in Al-Qaeda um, or Daesh or ISIS. And I was more, like, towards the extreme end of the spectrum. You know, I uh, really wasn't bothered by the idea of killing people to defend my religion. I wasn't really open about just sharing that with you know, whoever I was talking to, but that is what I felt in my heart, that that was okay to do. I, 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 was, I would happily give my life in jihad in order to bring honor to God and to defend Islam. So I was very serious <laughs> about my religion. And I thought I was doing really well. And what happened was, I got to a point where I became so confident in my ability to convert Christians to Islam because I was seeing it happening that I went ahead and married a lady, sweet lady, sitting right there, um, who was a Christian. And I married her because I thought, she's married to me, she's going to become Muslim. Because that's the, I was the guy that made Christians into Muslims. That's what I did. And, but obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> or I wouldn't be standing here. Instead... What I didn't realize is I'd married a, a lady who had been called to evangelism and gifted powerfully to be an intercessor in prayer. And though she wasn't walking close with God at the time because she married me, it didn't take very long in our marriage for her to realize where she was at and that she was not walking in the will of her father. And as she clung to his side, and devoted herself to God in prayer and in the word and started getting involved in church again, she heard the Lord say to her that arguing with me wasn't doing any good. I wasn't going to be won over with human words of eloquence or wisdom or some great apologetic. But that if she would commit herself to God, that he would do all the work. 
And so she began to pray hardcore for me and getting everyone in her church praying for me. And then we moved cities. We moved from, from Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas to Springfield, Missouri and went from a big church in Dallas to an even bigger church in Springfield. It had like 20,000 people in it and she got them all praying for me. Yeah, awesome, praise God. But that wasn't enough because she was still out in the, in the neighborhood and the parking lot and the supermarket asking everybody she knew if they knew Jesus. And if they said no, she'd tell them about Jesus. And if they said yes, she'd say, my husband's name is Nasser. He's a Muslim. Pray for him. Here, let me write down his name. And so I had thousands and thousands and thousands of people praying for me by name week after week after week. And after two years of this, because my heart was incredibly hard, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit. I thought it was just a voice in my head. The Holy Spirit began to speak to me and began to reveal to me that all this, these works that I was doing for God were really all tainted by selfishness. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, I would do things, I would help people, all these good works, but I didn't really care about people. And if I was honest with myself, I didn't really care about God because I, I, I followed a religion that really wasn't about having a relationship with God. It was about just serving God. And I just wanted to get to heaven because I knew there was good stuff there. And so I was doing all, this, all these good works, all these righteous acts in order to get to heaven so I could get the cool stuff. And God started to reveal to me that that's really pretty selfish, <laughs> And if that's the only reason you're, if that's the motivation for why you're doing all this, everything you're doing is tainted by that selfishness. And furthermore, even if I liked all the things that you're doing, I don't like what's in your heart. Your heart's full of pride, envy, prejudice, lust, all this wickedness. You might look great on the outside, but you're like a cup that, I mean, that somebody just, you know, the outside of the cup is all spick and span shiny, but the inside of your cup is like black like tar, dirt. Like, who's going to drink out of that? And I could just feel the presence of God, like God was just so far away from me in my prayers. And his face was turned away from me. And I was just like, wow, this is not good. I'm not a good enough Muslim, and I thought I was the best. In fact, you know, everybody that I knew in the Muslim community there was just like, yeah, you're like the holiest guy we know. Um, because I just, I knew everything. You know, I'd memorized large portions of the Quran. You know, there are Muslims all throughout the world, but we're pretty, you know, arrogant in Saudi Arabia and thinking that, you know, because we're the keepers of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina, that we're the birthplace of Islam. So therefore, we're kind of like the pure ones and everybody needs to take their marching orders from us. And, and to a, a great extent, a lot of uh, Muslims from other countries do look to Saudis as like, wow, yeah, they really, they got the religion down. Like, I want to learn from them. Many, many um, young men in Eastern Africa send their, their sons to Saudi Arabia to get religiously educated so that they know what the real religion is. And unfortunately, what happens is they get super radicalized and come back to places like Sudan and Somalia and begin massacring Christians because their eyes have been opened that we can't have any fellowship with the infidel. And that was what I came out of. And God was showing me that this life that I was living that I thought was so grand was not pleasing him at all. And that he wasn't a merchant that was, you know, heaven was for sale if you prayed enough times. 
That wasn't a currency he was interested in. He wanted a clean heart. And I felt challenged to clean up my heart if I was going to find myself in heaven. And so I tried really hard. Tried to be a better Muslim. Tried to change myself from the inside out. And you can guess how well that went. Every day it was like, well, not so good today, maybe tomorrow. Well, I just blew it and it's only 8 a.m. Okay, maybe tomorrow. You know? Day after day after day wasn't good enough. Was not good enough. And I realized that I was never going to be good enough in all likelihood, and therefore I would be in hell. And I thank God, this was like mid-90s at this point. I'm a young guy, almost 20 years old, and there, before 9-11, before, you know, Al-Qaeda was a big thing, because if, that, if there, all it would have taken was one person to come into my life and say, hey, buddy, um, we've got this opportunity for you. You're going to have to die, but you'll be a martyr for Allah. And I would have jumped on it. I would have jumped on anything that would have given me a ticket to heaven. But fortunately, that didn't happen. Instead, what happened was, I was sitting in a church one Sunday morning, because my wife had been inviting me, inviting me, inviting me for months and months and months. And finally, I was just like, eh, you know, I'll check it out. Maybe I'll find some, you know, open Christians who would like to hear about Islam, that maybe I could convert them in the church. That would be kind of funny. And so I was, that was just kind of my way. And I come to church, and one Sunday morning, the pastor's preaching on the cross, which immediately means I tune him out because I know all the reasons why I don't believe that nonsense. You know, Muslims, they believe that Jesus was a prophet. He was a really good prophet. He was sinless, in fact. They believe he was, you know, born of the Virgin Mary, all these miracles. He raised people from the dead, cured lepers, all that great stuff. But he was still just a man. He wasn't the son of God just a prophet with a message. And when he was done delivering his message and, and people were going to betray him, God snatched him up to heaven and saved him. Because Muslims don't believe that God would ever let a, a good prophet be killed by wicked people like the, what Christians believe about Jesus. We believe that God will always protect good people because we believe that God is fair. And so bad people get punished. Bad people have bad things happen to them. And good people have good things happen to them. And Jesus was good so that bad business with the cross could never happen to him. And that's what I believed. So the preacher's preaching on this and I'm just like, yeah, whatever. But here comes the Holy Spirit again. I don't know it's the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit coming again saying, hey, wouldn't it be nice though if this was actually true, if this gospel that you're hearing right now was true? Wouldn't that fix all the, the brokenness in you? And I was like, yeah, it's not true. I know all the reasons why it's not true. Mentally, I'm convinced. I've convinced other people who thought that they believed this that it wasn't true. So, you know, obviously I'm right. But the voice persisted, but wouldn't it be nice if it was true? I started finally, I kind of started to engage with it mentally. I thought, well, what if? What if it was true that God, who is holy and pure, created all things, humiliated himself by being born into the earth as a baby, 
as a little baby. I mean, it just was ridiculous to me. But okay, fine. Let's say I can accept that. That God could do whatever he wants, so he does that. How could I ever believe? In what universe does it make sense that, that, that my God and King, who is worthy of all honor and praise, would allow himself to be spit on, to be mocked, to be brutally tortured, have his body just torn to shreds, and then stripped and nailed to a cross publicly? What kind of a God would subject himself to that kind of shame? I don't, I don't recognize that God. That seems weak to me. I can't, I can't believe that. And if that's the truth, and this is where I really, you know, stepped in it. I said, God, you're going to have to show me <laughs> Because it doesn't make any sense to me and nobody can seem to explain it. And apparently that was just enough of like a half of a maybe mustard seed of faith to just say, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't believe but help my unbelief kind of a prayer. Because God instantly, like a thunderbolt, stepped in my life like, thank you for that invitation. And immediately gave me a vision. Right there in the middle of that church. Church is all gone. It's just like, Boom, I'm, I'm transported to somewhere else. I'm on this rocky hill, which I now know is called Golgotha, and there's Jesus being crucified right in front of me. There it is happening right in front of me. The very thing that I didn't believe, there it's happening. And it's definitely Jesus. I know it, not because I can recognize him, because he's bloodied and torn from head to toe, but because I just know in my heart that that's Jesus, that that's the Messiah on that cross in agony. And I can't, it's like my eyes are just fixated on him. I can't turn to my left or to my right to see anything else. I'm just seeing Jesus. And then I see this darkness, this blackness that I recognized was my sin, the sin that I've been struggling with that I can't do anything about, that I can't seem to conquer, get over, being gathered up along with everybody else's sin, all of humanity from the beginning to the end, being gathered up and poured out on Jesus on innocent Jesus. And what is he doing? He's just soaking it all up. Every last bit of it. And when he shouted out in victory that it was finished, it was gone. It was wiped out. And then I heard a voice saying, that was why I did that. Because that was the only way that you and I were going to have a relationship. And it was worth it to me to pay that price. And then, you know, he's going to drop the mic moment because that's how God is. And like, what else is he going to say? Vision's gone. I'm back sitting in this church service again thinking, oh my and what just happened to me, but I don't have time to really think about it because the service is ending. The pastor's leading everybody and like a, everybody bow your heads and close your eyes and I'm gonna, if you wanna receive Jesus as your savior right now, just pray this prayer after me. And I'm praying the prayer, the stupid prayer that I've been mocking for weeks as I've been coming to this church every week and thinking this is the silliest thing ever. Yeah, like that's gonna make a difference in your life. You're gonna pray this one prayer. I'm a Muslim. I pray five times a day, every day. Beat that. And there I was praying that prayer. 
and boom, it was like a fireball inside of me, a volcano just exploding. Presence of God, the peace of God, just, I don't even know how to describe it. That's the Holy Spirit. I got sealed with the Holy Spirit and filled me and I was just like, whoa. And my, and like my flesh and my mind is just like, battling like crazy, like, no, 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 this can't be, no, we're Muslim, we're Muslim, we were born Muslim, we're going to die Muslim, this, we cannot change religions. But it's too late. I was sealed. I had been, just as, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, I had been moved from being one born under bondage, born under a law, I had been redeemed I had received the adoption as a son. I had received the spirit of his son crying out in my heart, Abba, Father. Muslims don't call God Father. But I suddenly was calling God Father. Muslims don't see themselves as like on a friendly relationship with God. We see ourselves strictly as, if we're a good Muslim, as the slaves of God. You know, my father's name is Abdul Hamid. And some variation of that, or Abdullah, is, is like the second most common name in the Muslim world. And first is Muhammad, of course. And that literally means slave of God. And we expect that if we're good slaves, we get treated nicely by the master. If we're bad slaves, we get punished and we deserve it. And if we're good slaves and we persist in doing good till the end, we get a nice retirement package called heaven. And if we screw up, we get fired, literally, <laughs> thrown into the fire. And that's, and that's fair. But the problem is, one, it doesn't work, which was what I discovered, and two, you can give people all the nice laws of how to be good that you want. There's no power in law to actually obey the law. The power to live a transformed life, I discovered, comes only from God. There, there's no magic you know, doctrine that you can believe or do that's going to change your life. It has to be a relationship with the living God, the Spirit of God, active in your life, guiding you and leading you in all righteousness. Writing his law on your heart instead of trying to memorize it all in your head and do it like I was doing it. Because I memorized huge portions of the Quran. It wasn't making me a better person. I memorized huge portions of the Hadith and the Sunnah and all these other Islamic writings that are supposed to like fill out all the things that the Quran doesn't cover. It didn't make me a better person. It didn't change my life. It, it couldn't change my life. But getting to know my Heavenly Father and spending time with Him, learning His heart so that it could be my heart, Learning his ways so they could become my ways. There's more power in that than anything else. And this is like the really interesting thing because it's really only been like in the last year for me that God has really been pressing hard on me with this whole importance of sonship. So, you know, I've been a believer now for almost 20 years. It was August of 96 that God gave me that vision. And for most of that time, I kind of thought, well, that was really cool. God gave me a vision. That's neat. Um... That's like my one big like moment of like really encountering God in a supernatural way. And I thought that's, you know, that's just how I was lucky to have that one. Well, uh, about a year ago, God called me to go on mission with him in Paris, France, 
with some other folks and, and minister to the, the immigrants from North Africa, all Muslims, from Morocco, Algeria. And uh, going there, he told me like some big stuff was going to happen. And something he also told me, which I've never told anyone else before, so you guys are like on the know now. Um, he told me I was going to die. And I was like really like unsure, like I was okay with that. But I was unsure how to like talk to my family about that. I didn't want them to like freak out. And so I told them, you know, God told me that there's a chance that I might die. But, you know, he also told me that I would have a peace about it and would be okay. But what he actually told me was that I would die. And so I went to France, like I had kissed my wife and my kids goodbye. Like I'll probably never see him again, but praise God he's going to use, and he was going to use me and do some stuff, amazing stuff there. So I get there, I'm just looking, okay, God, what are we going to do here? And like the first night that we're getting ready to go out and we're going to go in the first morning to go into the Arab markets, I'm going to hang out like tracks that say Jesus loves you, hand out Arabic Bibles and all this stuff in the middle of like the no-go zone of Paris, France, where, you know, it's so dangerous because that's where like all the Charlie Hebdo guys and the, the suicide bombers and shooters and all live in this one district of Paris that's sort of like a, um, a, an Arab or Muslim district. And we're going in there, and I'm thinking, maybe this is where it's going to happen. But, you know, I'm excited God is with me. He's going to use whatever happens. Well, that night, Jesus came to me in a dream. And in that dream, he, uh, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I didn't actually recognize him. In my dream, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to witness to some Moroccan lady about like how, you know, the gospel is going to be relevant to her and, and, you know, she's talking about how she's unemployed and, and France sucks and, and all these things and I'm trying to like have a nice relationship dialogue with her that I can lead to a kingdom conversation and this like Middle Eastern guy comes over and he's just kind of like staring at me like, what are you doing? And I didn't recognize him um, and he's looking at me, I'm looking at him like, hi, you know, hey, you know, this lady says France sucks and there's unemployment's really high. Do you agree? And he's like, no. <laughs> it's like, my problem isn't, uh, they don't have any work. My problem is they don't have enough workers. I'm like, oh, oh, well, what's, what kind of business are you in? Maybe you can give this lady a job. <laughs> and he just looks at me. I love Jesus. He just looks at me just like, almost sad, like, you silly boy. He says, I'm in the construction business. I'm like, ah, oh, construction. That's really easy to find work in the construction. Like, hey, lady, if you can use a hammer, I'm sure this guy will, will give you a job. And he's just like staring at me like, come on, nah, sir. And I'm like, who is this? I don't, I know he looks familiar. The beard, the dark kind of curly hair, those eyes are so intense. Wow, who I know, he knows me. I should know him. Who is that? And then, like, boom, Holy Spirit just like envelops, and he's Jesus is just transfigured, glowing brighter than the sun. And the Holy Spirit's like telling me who he is in a song. It's so beautiful. He's just singing me this psalm, all the praises and glory and honor of the Lamb. It just goes on and on and on, just like brought tears flowing down my cheeks and ending with, from his first breath, he was Savior of the world. And then the light diminishes regular, like, earthly Jesus there. And he's like, now, do you know who I am? Yes. And he looks at me with such intensity. And, and he says, I'm building my church. Wake up. And I instantly woke up from my sleep. 
It was exactly the time that I needed to get up and I had forgotten to set my alarm, which was terrible, but God woke me up. And again, as I woke up, I heard the voice again in my head, I am building my church, wake up. And I recognized in that moment as I reflected on that dream and the day went amazing and all this stuff, the week was phenomenal, miracles, literally like stuff out of Acts happening every single day in France. And I realized that I had somehow along the way slipped back into slavery, back into a thing where I'm doing all these things for God, trying to earn his favor as if I didn't already have it. And Jesus wasn't having it. He wants a relationship. He wants me to be following him and doing what he's doing, doing what he shows me the Father is doing. And that's what sonship is all about. You know, Paul later writes later on in chapter 4 of Galatians, starting in verse um, 22, it says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, which was Hagar, her son being Ishmael, from whom my people come from, and the other the free woman. We know Sarah, Isaac, the Jewish people. But he who is of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through a promise. Which things are symbolic? Which this is like, if you want to be really smart like Paul when you read the Bible, keep that in mind, that a lot of these stories that we read, it's good history, it's truth, but also there are a lot of things in Scripture that are meant to be interpreted through the Holy Spirit as we're reading. God is speaking to us, applying this stuff to our lives. Right now, it's relevant. Even that stuff, all that stuff with the tribes and the people and the Canaan and all that stuff you think isn't worth much today that's in the Old Testament, so vital, so important, so relevant. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you as you read it and show you what that stuff really means. So Paul's saying this is symbolic, for these are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, if we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. And this is so significant for me as an Arab guy who's a descendant of Ishmael, who is a descendant of the slave woman, to read this and know that in God's eyes, I have been moved from that biological lineage of slavery into a spiritual lineage of promise, of freedom, of relationship, of inheritance that I don't have to do anything to earn. You know, a son doesn't have to do anything to earn their father's love to be able to walk in the inheritance of everything their father wants to give them. We just, it's by right that we get to enjoy those things, by our birthright. And we are, are born again into the family of God. We get, to, we get sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a seal on our adoption papers that says, you are now a child of God with full rights that that entails. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Wow. Wow. That is how we are, we are to live with that mentality that I am a child of God and nobody else can tell me different because God has said it is so. 
But what happens, what's happened, what happened to me was I just slowly begin slipping back into that slavery mentality where I got to do, 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 do in order to keep God happy. And there's just not a lot of life in that, friends. We limit God from working in our lives when we are so focused on serving him that we forget to have relationship with him. And when we start doing things in our flesh as if there's anything that we've ever done in our flesh that can amount to anything. When I came back from France, everybody asked me, well, how was your trip? How was your mission trip? And I told everybody the same thing. It was life-changing. Because what literally happened there was I did die a little more. I, I've, obviously, I died when I received Jesus as my Savior. My sin was nailed to that cross. But there's still stuff that we're all working out day to day. And, and as I, what I've learned is every time I encounter God, more of myself dies. And it's going to keep happening, you know, until Jesus comes back. And hallelujah. But realizing that suddenly made me addicted instead to trying to find things to do for God and how I can better live on mission and all this human strategy and, and so forth to how can I have more encounters with God? How can I spend more time with my father so that more of me can be flayed away, more of me can be nailed to that cross and make more room in my heart for Jesus to live, for Jesus to walk out and walk through my life. Because I'm absolutely convinced that I died In 33 AD, that Jesus laid down his life so that I could die and take up his life and live for him. I'm convinced of that. And my question for you guys this morning, my brothers and sisters, is where are you at in that spectrum? Are you still, are, are you someone who has been set free by Jesus and if you're not, man, this is the day to do it. This is the Palm Sunday. This is the day to welcome the king into your heart. Let him be your Lord. Let him be your master. And receive the spirit that cries out, Papa God, thank you. And if you already have that relationship with God, praise him. But are you still living like a slave like I was? Are you still caught up in all these kind of rules that we put on ourselves of this is what it means to be a Christian is we live by all these rules or are you walking in the freedom of your sonship? And when I say sonship, ladies, don't think I'm excluding you. When the Bible talks about the bride of Christ, it's including the men. And when the Bible talks about adoption as sons, it's including the women. We're all the same in God's eyes. We're all joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Are you going to live that way? Are you living that way? That's my question for you this morning. Many of you know that every single week here at Eastside, we ask you to consider this question. What has God, what's the Holy Spirit been saying to you in the last few minutes through worship, through Nasser? And how is God inviting you to not just know it and understand it, but 
respond to it. It's, it's, it's now. God's word tells us now is the time for salvation. Now is the accepted time. I love the word of God where Jesus says, uh, don't be ashamed of me and I won't be ashamed of you in front of the Father, right? So it's, it's, the reason I say that is it's because in moments like these, when the enemy of our soul wants us to sit and be quiet and do nothing and stay slaves, right, Nasser? And it's when God says, well, I want you to be free. I want you to know me as a son or as a daughter. I want you to know me as your papa. It's moments like these that could go one way or the other. You know what God wants and you know what you want. So, so here's what I tell the enemy sometimes. Sometimes I say, Satan, you just shut your lying mouth. Because he's a liar and the father of lies. doesn't need to steal any more of our time or any more of our lives. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. If God's been speaking to you today, if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you, and you know you have been in slavery, and you know you have been far from God, and you've experienced that distance from God, and you want today to be a different day, You want today to be a day when you said on Palm Sunday 2016, I stepped into the presence of God. I I said yes to God. I made a, a decision to follow God. Would you just raise your hand right now? Just raise your hand really high. Praise God. Raise your hand really high. Amen. All over the room. Amen. Praise God. Now, God not only sees your hands, you can put your hands down. More importantly, God sees your heart, each one of you, even if you didn't raise your hand and you're saying to God right now, God, that's me. I want to know you. I want to experience being adopted by you. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. From this moment on. So I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to stand and the worship team is going to lead us in one more worship song. If you raised your hand, or even if you didn't raise your hand and you said, and you're saying, it's time for me to take this step. It's time for me to not be ashamed, to not be embarrassed. And this is for every one of us in this room. It's time for me to step out after all God's done for me. I want to know God personally. This will be your moment. Father, thank you that you are here with us, inviting us to know you. We ask now that you will do what only you can do and extend your offer of adoption and make it so in the lives of every single person in the room, especially those who've raised their hands to say to you, God, I want to know you. I want to begin a relationship with you. Lord, give them the assurance they need and the confidence they need to step out in faith and make a a bold declaration that I am a child of God. It's in the 
the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.